0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Hear some happy noises. Uh, it's great to have some daylight again, huh? Anyone notice? From the... Yeah, okay. That's yeah, like you you get home at five or whatever, and you're like, hey, there's still sunshine out there. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's uh, Adam. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Uh, Pastor Eric is back. He's back in town, uh, made it safely back from Ethiopia along with uh, John Underwood, uh, one of our elders here, is back in the church today. I think he's teaching upstairs during second service right now. Uh, And then for the rest of our team, they are traveling in other parts of the world, uh, some in the U.S., some abroad, but they they made it out of Ethiopia safely, and uh, we look forward to hearing a report from them uh, at a later time, probably when they're all together. Um, But I just want to share that with you all. Uh, Just before we jump into God's Word, uh, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much just for, uh, those great worship songs, Lord. And, uh, what a great reminder, Lord. Uh, you say scars and struggles on the way, uh, Lord. Yeah, that's, that's our experience, Lord. We know that. And yet we know that you're faithful, Lord. I think that, um, even that lyric that said, you know, never once did we ever walk alone. I think that's referring to when the Israelites were walking in the, in the, uh, wilderness for 40 years, Lord, um. Lord, thanks so much that, uh, you are faithful, whether we, uh, clearly sense your presence or whether you seem far off. Uh, we thank you for your goodness directed towards us. Um, just as we're tackling a a tough passage today, I pray that you'd, uh, guard our hearts and, and give us ears to hear, uh, what's going on in your word. Uh, pray that there would be encouragement, uh, and hope and some healing, even, uh, in the midst of a, a kind of a, a dark passage here, Lord. Um. But we thank you for what we're going to be reading here, and we thank you that uh, you're just so good to us. I'll pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, if you guys were here last week, uh, you might remember that we took on a uh, kind of an obscure passage from the Old Testament, and we were talking about God's character. Uh, Who is God? What kind of God do we serve exactly? And uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that I made a pretty audacious claim. Uh, Looking at our passage, I said, our God is not the type of God who sees trouble and then walks away. And that's a pretty powerful statement when you think about it. Our God is not the kind of God who can just look at trouble and kind of turn a blind eye and walk away from it. He has an intense compassion to help people in need. And that truth was what our passage last week pointed to. But if you were here, you might also remember that very briefly I dealt with an objection to that truth because, frankly, not everyone would agree with that assessment of God's character. Uh, For a lot of people, they would say, well, you know what? My life experiences just don't add up uh, to that truth about God. Someone might say, well, if, if God doesn't just see trouble and walk away, why do we have so much evil in the world? Why all this mess? Why all the injustice and pain? Why all this bad things? Why doesn't God do something about it? And again, this is still review here. Uh, last week I, I gave a very brief answer to that question, and I said, Well, God has done something about that. When God saw Adam and Eve and the rest of us as fallen mankind and this mess of sin and death and destruction, he didn't just say, Well, you know, I told him about that fruit in the garden. They should have just stayed away, but that's their problem now, not mine. Uh, he didn't walk away, but he humbled himself and took on flesh as Jesus Christ. And he came here into our trap to set us free by dying for us, by dying for our sin, uh, so that we could be reconciled for him. And that's an amazing thing uh, about our faith here in the words of uh, a Christian philosopher named Peter Creeft he says, how can you resent a God like that? I think that's well said. But I think if we're honest, the truth is that at different points in our walk, uh, many of us might struggle with that resentment of God or being angry with him. And we do so not because of evil in the world or sin in the world or injustice in the world in general, but because of a specific evil or a certain injustice or a named and known dream killer that God has allowed in our own lives for whatever reason. And I'm not talking about your typical kind of run-of-the-mill disappointment here Uh, when I'm talking about this. I'm talking about that maybe very small handful of game-changing events in our lives where they happen and and nothing is, is ever the same after that. Uh, it's kind of like your own private 9 11. It might be uh, the senseless death of a young person you know. It might be a false accusation that stains your reputation and, and follows you for the rest of your life, even though it's baseless. I'm talking about the kind of illness that not only won't go away, but just kind of gradually gets worse and eats up your body and your finances. Or for you, it might be the death of that one dream that you've always had. That when you reach a certain moment and you say, you know what? I think that that something or someone that I've always wanted is not going to come around. And I see that now. And these become really for us our darkest hours. When something major like this happens in our lives, we might even get to the point where we have a crisis of faith. And we say, hey, I don't even know if I want to follow God, if this is how it's going to be. And then uh, we have a new set of questions, basically. Our our new question is not so much, why doesn't God do something about evil in general in the world? Because we know he has, uh, but we have some other questions. We want to know, well, now that I'm here, what do I do? What do I do when God brings me to my darkest hour? Do we just kind of let our anger or disappointment boil up and get the better of us? And we say, you know what, God, if this is how you're running the universe... If this is how my life is going to be, well, then I'm checking out. There's no point in me praying anymore. There's no point in me making any kind of effort. I'm just going to be like everyone else and let my kind of faith fritter away here. Or is there a better way? And even if we hold on to our faith as the the trial kind of passes by, we might ask a second question. And that's not even so much what do I do, but how do I make sense of this? God, how do I wrap my head around the fact that you allowed this in my life? How am I supposed to find the strength to trust you even in the face of this game changer? And uh, those are some pretty big questions. But I imagine they're questions that a lot of us have wondered at some point uh, in our life or another. And we're going to take on this very tall order and see what God's word has to say about those things. And as we open up our our Bibles, I'll tell you where in a second, we're going to be looking at a passage that's, Very familiar to a lot of us. And as we struggle with our own questions of, well, what do I do when God brings me to my darkest hour? And how do I make sense of this? We're going to see Jesus himself struggling uh, in the dark. And for every tragedy or injustice or evil that we might go through, we're going to see that Jesus is right there going through his own darkest hour. And I don't even think it's an overstatement to say that the scene that we're going to come on in the Garden of Gethsemane is the darkest hour of human history. So if you've got your Bibles with you and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 14. And we'll be starting in verse 32. So Mark 14, 32. And as you might be opening up your app or turning over there in the old-fashioned Bibles... Um, let me just give you a little bit of background here. I said it's a familiar passage, but uh, we're coming off of when Jesus and his disciples have finished the Last Supper during the Jewish feast of Passover. They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray, and Jesus knows his time is short. Uh, He understands uh, that he's about to be betrayed, uh, handed over to the Jewish leaders and rejected by them, and ultimately that he's going to be killed. And... As he starts to face the start of his own darkest hour, he's not stoic. He's not unfeeling as I once imagined he might be, because in my mind, I thought, well, hey, he's God, right? So he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to die, but he also knows he's going to rise from the dead. So this whole crucifixion thing, what's the big deal, right? And that was a wrong understanding that I had, because yes, Jesus is God, but in the incarnation, he's also man. And we get a picture of the son of man in Mark 14. Uh, We get a picture of Jesus that we sometimes forget. He's not stoic or unfeeling. In fact, he's quite the opposite. He's deeply emotional and deeply troubled. And instead of just kind of waiting around there, kind of with his, you know, arms crossed and checking his watch for when the soldiers are going to come pick him up, he's hurling himself on the ground in front of the father and saying, God, is there any other way here? He's struggling with this impending terror that he knows the Father is allowing to come his way. Okay, so let's deal with that first question. What do we do when God brings us to our darkest hour? Uh, Reading in Mark 14 here, starting in verse 32, it says, they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Get not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the body's weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour's come. Look, the Son of Man's betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And uh, before we kind of dive into this passage and unpack it, I just want us to realize that Mark, as he's laying out this story here, telling us what's going on in Gethsemane, he's doing something very specific with the way he structured the story here. And what he's doing is he's juxtaposing Jesus with his struggle in the dark. He's comparing it to the disciples and their own struggle in the dark. There's a contrast that we're supposed to see here. We see Jesus, then the scene switches to the disciples, and then it's Jesus again, then the disciples, and then very briefly a third time here. And the reason why he does this is because we're supposed to understand what's going on with Jesus in light of what's going on with the disciples and vice versa here. Uh, So, no surprise in this contrast, the disciples are giving us the picture of what not to do, right? That's always the case in, in the Gospels, right? What not to do in your darkest hour. They're showing us by their example that your darkest hour is not the time to let go of God. Well, how exactly are they letting go? They're letting go of God in the sense that they're putting their own desires and their own priorities ahead of God's priorities, and the way that it specifically plays itself out in this story is Jesus tells them to pray and to watch. These are things they'd be doing on Passover. And the disciples over and over again say, huh? we're going to sleep. So Jesus says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. But round one, sleep wins. Okay, let's try again. Simon. Simon. He said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Okay, okay, we got you, Jesus. Round two, sleep wins. And for the very brief round three that's mentioned there, sleep wins by technical knockout here. What's going on? Well, Jesus spells it out when he says to the disciples, the spirit's willing, but the body's weak. See, there's this struggle going on with the disciples. It's basically between their spirit, which I'm going to call knowing what God wants, and between their flesh, which is just wanting what their bodies want. So when he says the spirit's willing but the body's weak, he's basically saying, guys, I know that deep down you really want to do what God wants you to do, but you're letting your own desires and your own priorities get ahead of God's will. Now, there's something bigger going on here than you guys can understand right now, But don't set your hearts on the things of men, on getting your Zs, basically. But set your hearts on the things of God. And this is something that happens with us all the time. We want what we want. And we can be a little bit oblivious sometimes of anything larger that God might have going on here. We know that we want a spouse if we're single or we want financial security or whatever we want. In this case, the disciples wanted sleep. And let me say this very clearly. These are reasonable desires here. All things being equal, there's there's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they in themselves can be good desires. But even our good desires can be a problem if we let them compete and win against what God wants for us in our life. And the whole problem with the equation of comparing what we want in our bodies with knowing what God wants is we don't have all the information, right? We don't have... God's perfect perspective. And so when we compare those two things, what we want versus what God wants, uh, we don't see how it's a fair shake and we lose heart. Or we might even get angry and we're saying, God, this is clearly better than what you want. And we might even teeter on the edge of calling it quits with God. Sometimes if things don't pan out for us, we might even say, you know, God, this is not acceptable. If this is how you're running the universe and how you're running my life, well, I'm out. I'm done praying. I'm done with all this religion stuff. I think I can do better on my own. But see, the disciples are part of the contrast. This is not the way that God intends for us to deal with those major disappointments in our lives. Jesus shows us the flip side here, the other part of the coin here. Your darkest hour is not the time to let go of God by dismissing what He wants and demanding what we want. Your darkest hour, is the time to hold on to him. And uh, I think it's very fascinating to just look at the passage and realize that Jesus is having the same struggle here that the disciples are having, right? His body wants something, something in his flesh, and that's at odds with the spirit, knowing what the Father wants here. Let's look at this. Jesus in his body, in his flesh here, he wants, he really, really wants out of this darkest hour. Verse 33, reading it again, he says, He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. I don't even think that the NIV captures that the best there. The New English Bible translates it a little bit better. Uh, Horror and dismay came over him. This is intense emotion that Jesus is feeling here. And, And the bottom line of it is he wants out. It's not a fun thing. And reading in verse 35, it's something absolutely amazing. He says, going a little farther, Jesus, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. And when Jesus is talking about this hour passing by or this cup being taken away from him, he's basically saying, you know, Father, I really don't want to do this. I know what's coming is ugly and terrible and horrible beyond imagination. So if there's any other way possible to save mankind, let's go with that. Let's go with that plan and and leave this whole uh, suffering way out of it. I'm pleading with you here. Don't make me go through this. And then in the midst of his anguish, as he's in his darkest hour, we hear those words that we know so well, but, or yet, not what I will but what you will. So for Jesus in this grand battle between his body and spirit, his desire to please the father beats out his very strong and very understandable desire to just to get out of the situation. And the language that I used here in the sermon outline uh, is that Jesus doesn't let go of God into his darkest hour by seeking after what he wants in his flesh, but he holds on to the father in and, and the sense of that is that he's seeking after what the father wants. Jesus puts his trust in the father and he surrenders his will. I want to just look at those two words, trust and surrender here, right? Jesus trusts the father because he understands his love there. He says, Abba father. These are terms of closeness, intimacy, knowing the father heart of God. He understands God is loving, right? And he trusts in the father's power saying, Hey, everything's possible for you. It's not the first time he said this in Mark's gospel. He has a trust in God, knowing his love, knowing his power. And yet he doesn't just kind of say, yeah, I trust you. I'll give you lip service on trust, but I really still want my own way. He follows it up with surrender. He says, not what I will, but what you will. And that trusting surrender is the answer to that first question we ask. What do you do when God brings you to your darkest hour? You trust in him and you surrender whatever that thing is that you need to surrender. And this contrast between Jesus and the disciples is telling us that these game-changing moments in our lives, they're not the time to say, no, God, I want my way, and that's just the way it is. But those are the times we need to just remember who he is in his character and his power and surrender to him. Even though it might not make sense, even though it's really hard, we trust and we surrender. So that's the answer to the what do we do question. But let's be honest here. Trusting God, surrendering to him, that's not always the easiest thing to do, is it even in the best of times? I mean, in how much more so if we're drowning in a lot of legitimate pain? So I want to just briefly touch on that second question that we have here uh, That at the beginning of the sermon is, okay, God, you want me to trust you, you want me to surrender to you. Okay, but to use the phrase of Pastor Eric several weeks back, Help me, right? Help me. We need some help to understand that. How do I wrap my head around this? Lord, can you tell me why this terrible thing happened in my life? And really, when we're asking those kind of, you know, help me understand questions, I really think what we're saying is, how can I trust you, God, in the light of this game changer? And uh, I'll be blunt with you. I don't just have a, a bag full of, One-to-one answers for all the specific pains the specific issues in people's lives here. Um, uh, Key example here, in my own life, about 18 years ago, my uncle Mike uh, was murdered. Uh, He was shot dead by a man he didn't even know. And um, what made that really bad was about just a year and a half, two years prior to that, he had gotten his life, cleaned up and turned around, became a believer in Jesus, and things were going really well for him looked like he had his whole bright future ahead of him. And not shortly after that, uh, he was gunned down and gone. And I was talking with my mom recently about his death. And I said, mom, you know, it's been almost 20 years since uncle Mike was killed. Do you see any good that came out of that? And we kind of thought and speculated a little bit. And in the end, we just had to kind of shrug our shoulders and say, you know, we really don't know. And, uh, That's how it is sometimes. We don't always get those satisfying and clear one-to-one answers of why did such and such happen. But just because that's the case, that doesn't mean that Scripture is silent about, well, how do we come to terms with losses like these, like the death of my uncle? How do you wrap your head around loss? How do you find the strength to trust God as you go through the darkest night? It's not just in getting a clear answer to your why question. But you have to keep in mind that God is is trustworthy. God's trustworthy. Well, how do we know that? Two things I want us to think about. First, he took on mankind's biggest problem in a personal way, right? And that truth is at the core of our passage here in Gethsemane. This is God in the flesh taking on the biggest problem ever. God took on flesh and died not as this emotionless robot who just knew he was going to scrape on through it, but as our great high priest who has been tempted and tested like we are, who knows our pain, who knows our suffering in a firsthand kind of way. Uh, if you have your bulletins with you, I put a, a pretty lengthy quote in there uh, about this aspect here. It's by Peter Kreeft. It's that same Christian philosopher I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. And the quote is somewhat long, but I'd like to read it because he just says this so much better than I could. So if you want to follow along on your bulletin there, it says Jesus Christ came right down into our trap and died to free us. The one who asked us to trust him to solve the problems of evil already did the greatest thing to conquer it. He suffered every kind of evil with us. He was hated by the people he loved. He was nailed to a cross and died. He even felt his father leave him horribly alone on the cross. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's evil. That's evil. All the evil in the world is there, and there he is, in the middle of it. You think of God up in heaven controlling things down here, and you wonder why he doesn't do a better job. You wonder if he really cares and how he can be good if he just stays there and turns away and lets terrible things happen. But it's not like that. He didn't stay away. He came down into evil. And that's the Christian answer to the problem of evil. It's not a tricky argument, but Christ on the cross God on our side, the side of the innocent sufferer. How can you resent a God like that? And that truth that God knows our struggles and that he really feels our pain does make it easier to trust him and surrender to his will when we're facing our darkest hour. And there's one other aspect I want us to think uh, other than... uh, His solving the biggest problem in a personal way. We need to remember that God often has bigger purposes in mind than we often see. And this is all wrapped up in those two little words in our passage. Your will. It is not my will, but your will be done. God has a will. uh, And he'll allow things sometimes that we don't often understand. uh, But we are fortunate enough that sometimes in Scripture... God will give us a glimpse of some of those bigger purposes that He's allowing, uh, that is, by letting bad things happen. Uh, sometimes we see in Scripture that God allows us to uh, suffer bad things or trials so that our faith or that our character is developed. Uh, we read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He says, This is Peter talking to his audience. He says, These trials, right? Trials are bad things. These trials have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials sometimes are allowed to develop our faith. And we see the same thing in the Apostle Paul's life, right? I mean, uh, he prays three times for this thorn in his flesh, whatever that was, to be taken away from him. And God basically says no to him. Why? Well, that character trait in Paul of having him depend on God's grace and trusting God was more important in God's view than taking that thorn of his flesh away. So that's one thing is Is it helps develop us and our character in our, in our uh, faith. And sometimes we can see in Scripture God will allow bad things to happen for the benefit of others. If you think back to Joseph and the book of Genesis, right, he gets thrown in a pit by his brothers, sold as a slave, and I'm sure he's not thinking at the time anything real happy-clappy. He's probably thinking, what on earth is going on here? made no sense at the time. And yet, as the story pans out, he gets some perspective. He sees how God had allowed this to happen to help others. And he says to his brothers, the thing that you intended for evil, God intended for good. And the entire ancient world at that time was saved because they had food during a famine. And this is back in our Gethsemane passage as well, right? The Father has a bigger purpose that we're aware of because we know the end of the story and allowing Jesus to die and suffer on the cross. Through the world's darkest hour and the world's greatest injustice, God worked in bringing out the greatest blessing by reconciling man to God. And that's no small thing. Uh, So those are some of the bigger purposes that God has. Now, as great as those examples are, examples are, I do think we need to be a little bit sober here and admit that uh, we don't always get to see the purposes there. Job suffered greatly, if you've read through Job, and he's not exactly given this one-for-one direct answer of, well, this is why this happened in your life, Job. We're still left scratching our heads a bit uh, at the end of the book of Job. We don't always get that color-by-number answer to our questions. But when we're in our darkest hour, it does become easier to trust God and surrender to his will when we see how he personally cares for us so much that he would suffer for us. And when we can get a bigger perspective of how he can and, and does turn evil around for good and for bigger purposes than we might imagine. So um, we're going to wrap up the sermon, but we're going to do it in a little bit different way than normal. I'm going to ask Peter in a second here to put on a song um, by Rich Mullins uh, called Hard to Get. Uh, it's possibly my favorite song of all time. I have to think about that before I can put that out there for sure. But if you're not familiar with the song, the background of it is uh, Rich Mullins wrote the song shortly before he was killed in an auto accident. And uh, Rich, or the guy who's singing the lyrics, as it were, is struggling with, God, why do you do things the way that you do? Why do you allow the things that you allow? He's having his own struggle in the dark there. And uh, if this is your first time hearing the song, you might think to yourself, man, what a depressing song to end up a depressing sermon. Get me out of here. I want to go to lunch. Well, don't miss what's going on here at the end of the song. Uh, There's a real subtle shift uh, after the bridge. So listen for that. Rich, or again, the guy singing, has a change. And there's a place where he comes to, to trust in God and understand who he is. And there's a place in the song too of surrender. And with that trust in God's character, with that surrender to his will follows a peace uh, that can carry him through. And that's where I want us to be here. I hope that our application will be the same, that if we're finding ourselves in our darkest hour, that we don't just say, you know what, God, I want my way or I'm out. But we say and said, okay, God, it doesn't seem a tad up to me, but I know who you are. I know you're loving. I know you're good. And I'm going to surrender this thing to you. That's where we find our peace. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll listen to the song. Lord, these are deep waters. But we praise you that uh, you're able to handle our toughest questions. And Lord, just like, uh, you know, a parent of kids, Lord, uh, our kids don't always see or understand the whys of why we do things. Um, that's how it is with us in you, Lord, that we just don't understand a lot of times, Lord. And that's frustrating. But thank you that you're big enough to handle that, Lord. Thank you that you're good enough to handle that, Lord. Um, help us, Lord. In, in preaching this today, Lord, my you know my hope is not to scratch on old wounds, but Lord, that you'd bring healing. So please bring healing to people. Um, give us a way forward as we trust you and surrender. We love you.
1: Pray of those of us who live on earth Who are afraid of being left by those we love And who get hardened in the hurt Do you remember when you lived down here That we all strayed to find the faith To ask the daily prayer you forget about us, Do you have gone away. Well, I memorized every word you said, still I'm so scared I'm holding my breath, while you're up there just playing. While you're up there just playing hard again And I know you bore our sorrow And I know you feel our pain And I know that it would not hurt less Even if it could be explained And I know that I am only dashing out at the one who loves me most And after I have figured this somehow what I really need to know Hear the prayers of those of us who live in time We can't see what's ahead And we cannot get free from what we've left behind I'm reeling from these voices that keep screaming in my ears All these words of shame and doubt, blame and regret can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. So you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your ways and you are just playing hard to get.